This is a Holy Baptist Church podcast, bringing you into a community in which everyone is welcome, lives are changing, and Jesus is King. Thanks for listening with us today. We would invite you to subscribe so you can keep up to date with us. But for now, we pray you enjoy listening for what God has in store for you in this episode, and that it helps change your life for the better, in Jesus' name. Enjoy. It's great to be here. I hadn't sung that song for a long time. Oh Lord, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen. I I don't know if you're aware, but it's a beautiful day out there. There are lots of things we could be doing outside today. I'm not remotely interested in teaching you more about Jesus. I'm not. But I'm really excited about the idea that we could meet him together. That we could encounter him. That those words we've sung might be true of our lives and experience today. Oh Lord, my ears have heard of you. But now my eyes have seen. You see, there's always more of Jesus to know. There's always more of his love and power to experience. And there's always more of our lives to give. That's the journey we're on today. I don't know if you know, but if you're going to go to a church that you don't know and you want to impress them, you choose three Bible passages which nobody has ever heard of because it will all be brand new. Um, I'm really sorry. I'm going to disappoint you on that. I'm going to attempt speaker's suicide this weekend. I'm going to speak about three stories that you know really well. Because I'm not really interested in teaching people more stuff about Jesus. But I long for us to say, oh Lord, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen. When Paul prayed for the Ephesians, he prayed that you would know the height and the breadth and the width and the depth of this love. And you would know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you would be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. Wow. The greatest lines in English poetry, in my humble opinion, are in a hymn which says, Thou my true father, and I thy true son, thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit of Jesus lives in you already. And the Spirit's work this weekend is to push and to pull. He, he wants to pull us into the love that flows between the Father, Son and the Spirit. And he wants to fill us with the love and the power that is already present in our lives by his Spirit. Thou my great Father, I thy true Son, thou in me dwelling and I with thee one. You see there's always more of Jesus to know. When I was uh, um, pastoring in Worthing, there was this guy called Ken Needham. He was a traveling evangelist, and I'd come to faith through him. And uh, I got him to come and speak at the church I was now pastoring. It was a lovely moment. And on the Monday morning, Ken was around to speak at the Minister's Fraternal. Minister's Fraternals weren't the kind of thing I really got up for in the morning. They, They weren't something that particularly excited me. And and ministers fraternals have this kind of air about them which, 
you know, everybody, you know, kind of keeps their cards fairly close to their chest because we're all conscious of who's got the biggest church, the smallest church, you know, it's all that sort of dynamic. And, um, you know, we're, we're, very, we're very proud of our theological educations in a very humble way, you understand. And so we, we hold that graciously. And, and so I introduced Ken to this group, room of about 20 ministers and I said, um, Ken became a Christian without meeting another Christian very unusual. He, he'd read the Bible and come to faith. And uh, I said he has absolutely no theological, uh, theological education, but has spent the last 40 years traveling the world telling people about Jesus. And I could see some of my, my spiritual colleagues just say, oh really, no theological education? And um, he just, he kind of, Ken got up and he stood there and he just said, nobody knew Jesus better than John did. And then he started to tell the stories that are in the Gospels of how Jesus, uh, about how John was part of the group of 72, the, the, the wider crowd that followed Jesus. He didn't tell us anything that wasn't in the Gospels that we could read for ourselves. And after about 15 minutes, he paused and he said, so nobody knew Jesus better than John did. He then got on to talking about how John was part of the Twelve, and then he told the, the stories about how um, the Gospels tell us about how Jesus was with his Twelve disciples. And he took another ten minutes to do that, to tell us everything we could read in the Gospels, and then he said, and nobody knew Jesus better than John did. Well, by now, some of my colleagues have got out their phones and they're starting to, you know, just, what, what have I got to do today? Why am I sitting here listening to this? But Ken, completely oblivious to the atmosphere, he's really going for it now. He's now talking about how John was part of the three, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of Jesus. And he goes for another 10 minutes again, just telling the stories that are in the Gospels. He gets to the end and he said, nobody knew Jesus. Well, we could say it for, himself, for ourselves by then. We got his one point of the talk. Nobody knew Jesus better than John did. We've been going half an hour, but he's still not finished. Now he's on to those moments in John's gospel where John is on his own with Jesus, the beloved disciple. And he gets to the end of it and he says, nobody knew Jesus better than John did. By now there's a bit of an awkward atmosphere in the room. It, I, was, I was decidedly uncomfortable thinking, I've got all these guys here. We were hoping for something of a bit more depth and substance and we've got one point and we all knew it before we came in. And then Ken just stood there and he said, turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Well, we all knew where it was, so we turned in our Bibles to Revelation 1. And he said, this is John, 90 years old, on the island of Patmos. He's in prison and he has a revelation of the heavenly Jesus. And he reads the words there, and he fell on his face as if dead when he saw the glory of the risen Jesus. And then there was this long silence and Ken said, hold on, I thought nobody knew Jesus better than John did. And at that point he walked out. <laughs> He's been going for 40 minutes and he walked out. And then this amazing atmosphere descended onto this room of professional clergy. You see, what had happened was that Ken had not, was not oblivious to the vibe. He'd read it. He'd discerned it. He'd understood it. And then he cut straight through it. All your theology degrees, all your pastoral years of experience, you think you've got this nailed. Nobody 
knew Jesus better than John did. And when he met the heavenly resurrected Jesus, he fell on his face as if dead. There is always more of this Jesus to know. Let's not play the game of trying to learn new things about him. Let's this weekend say, Lord, I long to know you more. I long to experience you more, not for my sake, but for the sake of the world. Oh Lord, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen. So, speaker's suicide, number one. John chapter four. You'll know it really well. Um, this is the story of Jesus uh, meeting the Samaritan woman at the well. And uh, I'm just going to take us through the story. And in this first session, as we think about go tell the world, I'm going to ask her the question, so what is the gospel? What are we telling? And that's where we're going. And then we'll take a break for some coffee and we'll move on from there. So all families have their stories, don't they? All families have those stories that come up around meal tables. You know, granddad used to, you know, was in the Second World War or something. And, you know, we all have stories. One of the stories in our family when we get together is about when we went on sabbatical. We um, had three children growing up in church. And after, I don't know, 14 years in ministry, I got a sabbatical. And so uh, we left Worthing and we drove to the high northwest coast of Scotland. It was so high on the northwest coast of Scotland that when from Worthing we got to the Scottish border, we were halfway. <laughs> okay. So we're right up on this shepherd's croft on the side of a sea lock, and uh, there's nothing. It was a 180-mile round trip to go shopping. Okay. It, we are talking really remote. It was just beautiful. And uh, so at night, I would tell the children stories, and I made up this story of, and, uh, uh, we were there for three months. So we, uh, that was, no, we weren't there for three months. The sabbatical was three months. I think we were there for two months. I mean, you have to work really hard to have, develop a storyline that goes on for two months, night after night after night. But anyway, Jack and Sam, and uh, uh, used to tell these stories. Um, uh, my kids were all into wildlife, and they wanted to see otters. We knew that otters were on the west coast of Scotland. We hadn't seen any. And so I told this story about how Jack and Sam were walking down the lane one day and they saw otters. And from this point, ladies and gentlemen, I completely made it up. I had never seen an otter in my life. I didn't know what I was saying. I was just trying to keep a storyline going over the night. I said, as soon as the otter dived under the water, Jack and Sam stood really still. And then as soon as it, it went under the water, they started to run closer to it. And then as soon as it popped up, they stopped dead still. And then as soon as it went up, and, and they got really, really close. And anyway, in the story, the otter talks to them, and then it all goes wild. But anyway, I went off to Ireland to speak at a conference, and Josh, who was about 10 or 11 at that point, the next day was walking down the lane, and guess what? He saw an otter. And guess what? He stood absolutely still until it dived under the water. And then he ran like blazes until it got up again, and he stopped. And Keris was watching from the bridge in the car, and Josh got within 20 feet of a completely wild otter. And that has become one of the stories of our family. That's the power of story. They kind of, they shape us. Josh heard a story and then behaved in accordance with the story. 
That's what it is to read these stories of Jesus. I'm fascinated that God reveals himself in narrative, in stories. He doesn't give endless loads of commands. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he tells the whole gospels are these stories of who this Jesus is. So come with me in this story so that actually this story might begin to shape the way we think, the way we act, the way we behave, that this story would become not just something we learn, but something we experience. Oh Lord, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen. So we pick up the story in chapter 4 of John, and uh, it says there, he had to go through Samaria. Now that's, that's very odd, because a few years before Jesus, the Samaritans had broken into the temple the night before Passover. You know how what a big deal Passover is in the Jewish calendar. They, they hated the Jews so much that they had got a whole load of dead bones and sprinkled it all through the temple, and Passover was off that year. That was revenge for a few years before where the Jews had ransacked the Samaritans' temple. They hated one another. There was deep enmity. If you were a religious Jew in the time of Jesus, you did anything to avoid going through Samaria because you were defiled by even being on their territory. Yet Jews were hugely judgmental towards Samaritans. They judged them ethnically, morally, and spiritually contaminated. But Jesus has a completely different agenda about what it means to know and love God. And so he has to go through Samaria. He's about to demonstrate something utterly profound about this new thing that God is doing through him. And so he came to a town called Samaria, a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son. And Jacob's well was there. In fact, Jacob's well is still there. It's a massive thing. Um, And those of you who have um, been to the Holy Land, you can can go and see that well. It is still around. Uh, He sat down, and it was about noon. Jesus is weary. He also might be just a tad fed up because one of the things we don't realize when we read the story as Westerners, um, we we miss all the cultural subtleties. Jesus was a poor man. Jesus would have walked everywhere. The journey, depending on from where he was going in Galilee um, uh, to where he was going in Galilee, he's got to walk with his disciples 150 kilometers approximately. It is hot and it is dusty. And when they set off on their journey, they would have a leather bucket which, and, and two sticks and some rope. And what they would do is when they got to a well on that journey, they'd open up the leather bucket, put the sticks in the top to hold it open, and with the rope, lower it down for water. And that's the, it's, it's the equivalent of carrying our water bottles around with us today, right? <laughs> well, the, the disciples have gone into town to get some food, and they've taken the bucket with them. It's like one of those moments when you've lost your car keys, or as I did this week, spent 15 minutes searching for my sunglasses, only to find I'd put them on the top of my shirt. Here, it, 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 This is Jesus very, very human. He's frustrated, he's tired, he's got a long journey, it's hot and dusty, and... Um, Frankly, he's just sitting down, waiting for some food. 
and uh, the, the, the well would have this great big stone around it to protect it from dust and animals. In fact, the, the capstone around it is five foot wide and 20 inches thick. It's a, it's a big old piece uh, of, of stone. And it's really worth thinking about the Jesus described in this story. This is a very human Jesus. We're told explicitly that he's tired, he's thirsty, and he's hungry. And then a woman appears in the middle of the day at the well. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? This is a really culturally awkward moment. I don't know those of you who have traveled in other cultures, um, but they throw up some really awkward moments. Uh, I was in Ethiopia once with a team, and the people we were working with, they wanted to take us out to dinner. Well, that was embarrassing, number one, because I would earn in a week what they earned in a year. They couldn't afford to take us out to dinner. And so we tried to say, no, no, we'd love to take you out to dinner, but that was culturally rude, unacceptable. Which secondly led to the fact that they would then take us to a very, 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 very cheap restaurant where the fruit, food was um, not only pretty awful, but quite dangerous to Western travelers because of the very, you know. So we're then into a second really embarrassing situation. Just when I thought it couldn't get any worse, when I'm trying to chew on the gristle that was labeled as meat and trying to swallow it whole without gagging, the, the, the culturally awkward moment got even worse when a dancing troupe came into the restaurant and uh, in polite company, the best way to describe the lead dancer was that she was a very large lady with not a lot on. Uh, so I'm trying to chew my gristle and this lady comes over and everything is wobbling and shaking and I'm just kind of heads down and, and the drums are going and every, you know, and they come over to this table with the westerners on and this lady grabs my arm and says, dance with me, dance with me. Well, I'm the kind of dancer where Keris will wander over at a wedding and just say, put your arms down, you're looking stupid and then and, and, and wander back again. So I tried, to, I tried to avoid getting up and dancing and, and my host said, Andy, it would be incredibly offensive if you don't get up and dance. So in for a penny, in for a pound, you know, so I, I start dancing away. What I didn't know was that there was a fourth cultural embarrassment coming my way in that one of my friends around the table filmed it and when we got back to church the following Sunday at the end of the service, there's me so, <laughs> dancing around with a woman who hasn't got a lot on. And Kerry said to me, I thought you said you didn't enjoy the moment. <laughs> cultural embarrassment. What's going on here in John chapter 4 is really culturally awkward. At the first level, this is Jesus a Jew and the woman is a Samaritan. For the reasons I've already explained, that would just not happen. Secondly, this is a man initiating a conversation with a woman he doesn't know. As one commentator wrote, he said, I lived in the Middle East for 40 years in the 20th century and I made sure I never did that once even then, let alone 2,000 years before. Jesus would have been expected to see the woman coming to the well and then walk back 20 meters and give her the space and not talk to her. That was what was the cultural norm. So this is highly embarrassing. 
But thirdly, it's not just racially awkward and unheard of in terms of gender, but there's a whole other dimension to the story. The clue is in the time of day. Middle Eastern women go to fetch water at dawn and dusk, and they go together for protection and propriety. This woman is alone, and it's midday. There are only two reasons for that. Number one, she's ostracized by her community. But the other thing we often don't realize is that she was trying to make contact with other travelers passing by the well that day. I'll leave the rest to your imagination. In other words, there is a moral divide here. Here is a respected Jewish rabbi talking to a Samaritan woman who is ostracized even by her own people. So there are these three great culturally awkward moments. There's Samaritan Jew, there's man-woman, and there's a rabbi with an immoral woman. And it creates a really awkward situation. Jesus reaches out beyond the norm to someone considered beyond reach. And what does he say? Please can I have a drink of water? He puts um, himself in need from her. And so it's little wonder that the woman instinctively pushes back. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And Jesus answered her and said, um, If you knew the gift of God, let me move on, sorry. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus immediately takes the conversation to a new level. Jesus says, if only you knew who you were talking to and the free gift that is available to you, you would ask and I would give you living water. <laughs> Understandably, now the woman's a tag confused. Hold on, a minute ago you were asking me for a drink and now you're telling me you can give me... You can see why she's a bit confused at this point, right? So she says, sir... You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? The woman is struggling to get a handle on Jesus. What does he mean by living water? She's not sure what's going on. And so, uh, is this the spring water in the well, or is he alluding to something more spiritual? Has he had too much sun, or is this wandering religious teacher? And so she responds to Jesus with a couple of questions which reflect her conflicted thoughts. First, if by living water Jesus meant spring water in the well, she points out the blatantly obvious, your, your mates have got the bucket. And secondly, if he's making a spiritual point, remember she isn't a big fan of the Jews, so she wants to say that this well um, that comes from Jacob belongs to the Samaritans. So Jesus has to cut through this all. And he does so really incisively. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up into eternal life. For Jesus, the word thirst now becomes a metaphor to describe the human condition. This woman's deepest need, the perpetual human need to be satisfied. And living water refers to his exclusive ability to satisfy human thirst permanently. 
For him, living water is as vital to the soul as water is to the body. And at first, it seems like there's been a bit of a breakthrough in the conversation. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I, might get, that I won't get thirsty. But then it becomes obvious that she's not getting it at all. So that I don't have to keep coming back to this well and drawing the water. She's not got it yet. I'm not being critical of her. It was a confusing conversation. So then Jesus just cuts through again. And he says to her, okay, go tell your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you're now with is not your husband. What you said is quite true. <laughs> okay, this talk has just gone, this, this conversation has just gone to a completely different level. Can you imagine this poor woman going, oh. who is this guy? He may have started the conversation full of human tiredness, thirst and hunger, but this Jesus is the son of God. And now with supernatural ability, he reads this woman's history like a book. It's a classic prophetic moment. And, 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 and the, the woman responds, Sir, I, I can see that you're a prophet. And, but reeling with the impact and not really knowing what to do next, she tries to deflect the conversation and gets into a and tries to take the conversation into a religious argument. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Do you see what she's doing? She's under in intense personal pressure, and so she deflects into a religious um, uh, discussion. You'll often find that when talking to people about Jesus. Whenever it gets slightly uncomfortable people want to deflect and talk about religion what about all those wars and the point is Jesus wants to keep coming back to the encountering him meeting this Jesus for herself when the implications of faith start getting personal people want an argument about religion so Jesus is not going to fall for that one but unlike our politicians he doesn't completely ignore the question, but he wraps it up in what he's wanting to really say to her. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. What? In other words, Jesus is saying everything that currently separates Samaritans and Jews, these two rival places of worship, these two temples, they're going to be totally eclipsed. They're going to become irrelevant. They're going to be transcended. And the person who's going to do that is talking to you. Everything that divides us, I'm going to wipe away. It's an astonishing statement. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do now. Salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is very faithful to the Old Testament revelation. But in verse 23, he goes on to say, Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. Jesus makes no compromises. Salvation is revealed in the Old Testament. But even more forcibly, he goes on to say that all forms of worship, even the temple worship in Jerusalem, are about to be dissolved, usurped, transcended. The hour has come, he now says, 
when a new kind of God, a new kind of worship of God is required, the physical temple is about to become completely redundant. True worshippers of the future, says Jesus, are those who worship God in spirit and in truth. That they would know his life breath. They would know, as we were singing, O Lord, my ears had heard of you the truth, but now my eyes have seen that filling of the Spirit. How much the Samaritan woman grasps of this first time around is unclear. Let's face it, this is a pretty deep conversation. She'd only gone to get water, maybe. But to be fair, uh, uh, she responds remarkably. I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Whenever we read the words I am, that's full of Jewish pathos and significance, where God had responded, I am who I am. And whenever Jesus uses this phrase, it's a thinly veiled claim to divinity. The story is started with the humanity of Jesus, his thirst, his weariness, his hunger. But now we have the full-blown divinity of Jesus. He's the Messiah, the long-awaited deliverer of God's people. He understands himself to be the source of eternal life. He claims personally to be able to quench our deepest thirst. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and he lives in the power of the Spirit. And so he is, in effect, the person through whom God is now worshipped in spirit and in truth. Now, at this point, the disciples rock up. They come back with you know, their um, Tesco meal deal, and... And, and they're just gobsmacked. This conversation, it shouldn't be happening. They're so shocked, the disciples don't actually say anything. They're just looking in terms of Samaritan Jew, man, woman, rabbi, immoral woman. Oh, my word, this is not good news. You know, if their credibility wasn't shot by following Jesus already, it is deeply shot now. And I just love what happens next. In verse 28, then leaving her water, she is so utterly transfixed with the person of Jesus, <laughs> she forgets to get the water. And she goes back to a community in which she's utterly ostracized. And she says to them, come and meet a man who tells me everything I've ever done. <laughs> which was quite a story. I think, you know, part of the crowd came thinking, oh, we want to hear that story. So they, you know. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way towards him. Something incredible has happened to the woman through this conversation with Jesus. And what has, what has happened is so dramatic, she gets the, forgets the very reason she went there. And she becomes one who previously ostracized by her community, now becomes an evangelist to it. Come and see a man who told me everything I did. And they came towards him. But notice this. Something has not only happened to the woman, but something's happened to Jesus. At the start of this story, he was pooped. He was tired. He was hungry. He's thirsty. And when he comes back, the disciples look at him and they think, somebody's given you something to eat. 
He was energized by this. His disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have bought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. There is an energy about Christ at this moment, which was missing at the start of the story. And somehow, in this encounter with the woman, that Jesus has been nourished by the Spirit himself. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest, he says. Um, uh, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields, they're ripe for harvest. Jesus sees the potential of what is happening as all these Samaritans come out of the village to meet with him. A few minutes ago, Jesus was tired and thirsty, and now he's buzzing because all these people are coming to here. And he realized, and, and he can see that how the Samaritan temple and the Jewish temple and their ways of worship, which have been so enmity for so long, are going to be completely eclipsed in worshiping God in spirit and truth through him, King Jesus. It's revived him, and he sees the potential. And it goes on to say, many, uh, 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 because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man is really the saviour of the world. The crowd could have sung that song. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen. And, and, and the story finishes with the disciples having to go back and spend two nights in the Samaritan village. So they're really stuffed in terms of their Jewish credentials. Isn't this a fantastic story? Isn't this just profoundly rich? My question for you is, so let's have a question. So what do people today thirst for and how does this story answer the question, what is the gospel? So, enough for me. I've been talking way too long. And I'd like you just to shuffle around your chairs into groups of no more than six, no less than three. And just ask one or both of those questions of each other. We've gone through the story. We want to encounter this Jesus, not just learn about him. So what do people thirst for today? And how does this story answer the question, so what is the gospel? What is the good news that we've got to share? It's about time you did some work, isn't it? That'd be great. So let's do that, and then we'll call back in a few minutes, and we'll, um, we'll have some Q&A, and I'll finish some things. So trying to think about how we not only just are informed by this story, but begin to live out of this story as we follow Jesus. Um, let's do, the, let's do the, um, the work of working through, okay, what, we've looked at what it meant then, let's look at how does this work out now. So, what do people today thirst for? We, we read in John 4 there that Jesus used this metaphor of thirst to reflect the human condition uh, of longing for satisfaction. What, what did you think that people thirst for today? Meaning. Meaning. Thank you. Knowledge, security. Knowledge, security. Acceptance. Acceptance. Love. Love. Yeah. Sorry. 
identity. Yeah, who, who am I? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And to be known, to be to be clear about who you really are, and to be accepted as such. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Satisfaction is just a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. I've got a microphone now, so. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> the, the, these are very deep um, reflections, profoundly um, uh, existential. You know, really really a guttural at the level of what people are actually looking for. And any others to contribute? Why am I here? Why am I here? Sense of purpose. Why do I exist? Yeah. Stability. Yeah. Prosperity. Prosperity. Status. Status. Respect. Yeah. Power. Power. I guess some of those things are, 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 are about trying to meet that deeper need of security, significance, self-worth, identity, all of those things. Yeah, just want to feel safe. Fear is such a massive shaper of human behavior. We, we just try to keep safe. You're doing really well with this microphone. Thanks for doing that, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Any, any, these, this, so, good health, yeah, yeah. I, I, as I said earlier, I've spent 37 years in local church leadership, and one of the privileges, but one of the problems of that is that most of the time I've spent with Christians. Over the last 18 months on a building site, that's been very different. And I have learned some words I've never heard before. <laughs> and I have really, really, really enjoyed, after several weeks of um, incredible language, saying to uh, um, a certain plasterer, at Simon, bet you can't guess what my previous job was. <laughs> and uh, oh, it was, I can't, t it was too rude what he said, but it was, it was a fantastic moment. Anyway. But what has struck me about working with those people is that all of the things that you are saying are, are these lived experiences day by day. And, and I've got into several lovely conversations where the implications of that emptiness of purpose and meaning of, you know, I lived for the kids, but now the kids aren't at home. Now what are we going to do? Really, really fascinating, really, f and 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 heartbreaking actually. So let's thanks ever so much for this. This is <laughs> let's go to the second question. How does this story answer the question? What is the gospel? What did you come up with there? If you got oh. if you got something lengthy to say rather than a one-word answer, then put your hand up. If it's a one-word. You can repeat that one. Yeah. 
There we go. Brian and then. Um, God knows everything about you, and he loves you. Whoa. Incisive. Yes. That, uh, let's, let's not rush on from there. That, that, you know, that, that, that just cuts to the heart of, of what Jesus does there in that conversation with the woman at the well. Aside of all the religious arguments, we're just trying to say to people, God knows everything about us and he loves us. Beautiful. Yes? Um, <clears throat> similar. The gospel is the good news that Jesus accepts everyone, no matter who they are or what they've done. Yeah. Yeah. Transcends those boundaries of race and religion and morality and gender and all of those issues which are so massive today. Jesus just transcends them. My take on it is the fact that Jesus loves you no matter what you are and where you are in life. Your walk of life doesn't matter to him. Yeah. He is the gospel. Yeah. Thank you, Jessica. Yeah. Okay, we've set a high bar with answers, but there's more to be said, so please feel free. What else did you come up with in your groups? Right at the back and then just... <laughs> my friends here are going to get really scared that I'm going to make them stand on the spot but um, they have said that um, actually Jesus cut through culture norm and, and everything that was going on and what they'd been told to believe and what they'd been told to understand and we were just talking about the fact that the disciples were probably really scared of the whole Sumerian town coming towards <laughs> Jesus and just that the fact that Jesus cut through all of that and yeah. loved them for who they were and they were able to he's accessible to all not just a society or another society but he was he was accessible for all of them yeah it's so, we just miss it with our western eyes but when it says he had to go through Samaria. That was nonsense to the Jews. You did everything to avoid going through Samaria. You go a long way out of your way, but Jesus had to go to Samaria. You know, completely uh, breaking down those cultural barriers. One more. Yeah. What's the gospel? <laughs> We were saying that many people don't know they're thirsty. They don't know they're thirsty. Right. So the gospel in one sense, as this woman found out, is finding out that there is an answer. I've seen something that I've never imagined was there before. So the gospel is the fact that there is an answer for your Yes. Needs that you don't yes. even know you've got. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yes, they, they, they're aware of those longings when they stop and think about it and have conversations, but, but have, have, have found a way of making the day-to-day -day work without um, the belief that there is an answer to those longings. Just carrying on from Dennis's point, uh, Jesus is a human example of that. So we actually have a human idea of what it's like to do that and what it is to be kind. Yeah, yeah. Yes, this is the incarnation masterclass, isn't it? This is a tired, weary, hungry Jesus in conversation. And the kingdom comes. <laughs>
Isn't he marvelous? Isn't this Jesus utterly compelling? He, he's just remarkable. Sorry, one more hand up there and then I'll say a few things in, in the last five minutes and we'll stop and have some coffee. I've always believed in Jesus and, and he's always answered my prayers. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. So just, just some other thoughts and before we finish about what is the gospel. So number one, the gospel is always a gift. Verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, the gospel is always a gift. There's nothing we can ever do to earn it. That lovely story of C.S. Lewis uh, where in the Oxford common room he just says the, own, the big difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world is grace. That every other religion in the world in some way or some form is trying to earn its way to God and Jesus is a gift that you cannot earn. Grace. The second thing about the gospel here is, and you've said it already, the gospel satisfies. People today are bankrupting themselves, trying to quench their thirst for satisfaction. People are prepared to even break the hearts of those closest to them in a search for satisfaction. The quest for satisfaction is endless, unaffordable, and unreachable. And that's the story of this woman. It can only, this human thirst of ours, can only be quenched in Jesus. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come by and eat. Thirdly, the gospel transforms it changes people I was telling you earlier that I'm part-time builder at the moment and the whole story has been this amazing adventure of faith we didn't have the money to buy the cottage let alone renovate it and miraculously this money has been coming in and it is an, and it's an astonishing story but we couldn't find a builder either and uh, um, I asked my elders at Upton Vale, my last church, to pray. And one of my elders came to me and said, Andy, God's spoken to me. He wants me to encourage you. A man from the valley is going to come and help you. Now, what Barry didn't know was, was when my family talk about going to the cottage, they always talk about going to the valley. It's in the Colm Valley in the Blackdown Hills. So I was interested to start with. And I was just chatting to a tree surgeon the following week. And I said, you don't know how many good builders do you? He said, I know a really good builder. And I said, I expect it's about 18 months waiting time. He said, actually, no, he finished on my house last week. He's looking for a new job. So I met him the next day. And I knew nothing about building. So we got Keris's brother, who has spent 20 years renovating properties for Lord Halifax up in Yorkshire. So he knows a bit about old buildings and renovation. And he met Steve. And uh, Ian said to me, do not let this man go. He is exactly the person you need. So we, we shook hands. And as he left, I said, Steve, where do you live? He said, oh, just down the valley. So after about a month of working together, when he knew I wasn't completely a nutcase, because I'd already explained to him this was a venture of faith. We, didn't have in, we had enough money to start the project, but we didn't have enough money to finish it. And he went, all right, just tell me in plenty of time. 
So we, had, we worked for a month together, and so we were working together one day, and I said, Steve, I never told you this, but you're an answer to prayer. And he went, he said, what do you mean? So I told him the story about, uh, that I've just told you about a man from the valley. And his eyes filled with tears. He said, oh, I wish I could believe. Right? I said, go on. He said, well, my business partner in Surrey, he was driving into work one day and he hit a man on a bike and thought he'd killed him. And at that moment, he prayed. He said, God, if you're there and you save this man's life, I promise to give the rest of my life to you. And then this big, tough builder, so I'm speaking in a voice only audible to dogs, and he's dear, tears, and he got really emotional. And he just said, I cannot describe to you the transformation that occurred in my friend's life. It had, it had blown him away. So little did Steve know that building the cottage here was going to be working with me, who just wants to introduce him to Jesus. We've had chances to pray together and talk together, and, you know, and, and the story is ongoing, so please pray for Steve. But um, what an amazing thing. I cannot describe to you the transformation that happened in my friend's life. That's what Jesus does. He transformed this woman, and that's what the gospel does. The, that's why testimony is so powerful, because people hear and see the transformation of Jesus. The gospel reconciles. It unites people. Jews staying in a village with Samaritans, worshipping Jesus together. And the gospel is about personal faith, not organized religion. Jesus keeps bringing it back to Jesus, not church. I've got a terrible shock for you, but please hear it. Church, even Baptist churches, will not satisfy your deepest need. Only Jesus can do that. The gospel is a process of discovery. I love this. You see, in this woman's understanding in John 4, first, Jesus is just a thirsty man. Then he's a Jew. Then he's a rabbi. Then he's a prophet. And then finally, he's the Messiah. She tried to get the better of the thirsty man. She disliked the Jew. She argued with the rabbi. She was stunned by the prophet. And she decided to serve the Messiah. I don't, I'm not assuming that everybody here is a follower of Jesus this morning. But where we are on that spectrum is an important point to place ourselves. Where are we? Because every Sunday, pray God, church will have the curious and the committed. It will have the critical and the concerned. But you know, there will be an array of people there and we have got to find a way as church, as singing, as worshiping, as speaking, that speaks to everybody on that journey, not using language which is exclusive and all those things, because coming to an understanding of the gospel is a process and a journey that you see here. Last thing to leave with you is this. The gospel is very uncomfortable. They got into some really uncomfortable situ situations here, the disciples, Jesus, crossing those cultural bar barriers. And what we try and do as a church is we try and share the gospel of Jesus and stay safe 
and meet our needs and you know, deal with our fear. We try and do it on our terms and on our turf. If I was to show you a quick diagram, have you ever seen this, the turf and terms? Um, so, a little matrix here. So, this is turf and this is terms. By, t by turf, I mean our ground where we feel secure and terms I mean on our agenda. So this is Yep, yeah, we'll do Pam. My turf, your turf, my terms, your terms. I'm not sure why I've written that because you won't be able to read it anyway. But anyway, let's just bring that to the front as my Lovely Aunt Pam has requested, and cheers, Daz. Let's just put that one back. So what we try and do in church is we want to stay safe and secure when we're telling people about Jesus. So when it's my turf, you come to the building and hear about Jesus. When it's your turf, we go to where people are. So my terms... So we're going to have a conversation about who Jesus said he was. Oh, actually, but you want to talk about your marriage or bringing up children. So, turf and terms. Where does Alpha go? Alpha goes right there. My turf, my terms. I set the agenda for the conversation. You come, you're my guest. We'll be very kind to you. We'll feed you food. We'll, oh, but, but I am meeting my deep need and fear and insecurity by getting you here on my turf on my terms. Anybody feeling uncomfortable yet? <laughs> what did Jesus do in John 4? Your turf, your terms, com real conversation, Oh, by the way, we're going to come back. And what does he do to start with? He says, could you give me a drink of water? In other words, he put himself at the need of her to start the conversation. D.T. Niles was a Sri Lankan theologian who said, all over the world I just see Christian missions, building hospitals and schools and doing all this incredible work and it's so well motivated but it's about our terms and our turf and if we're going to have genuine conversations about Jesus that don't see us as being in control, we're going to have to do a lot harder to think about what does following Jesus look like on their terms and their turf it's great being provocative when you're not coming back to a church. I can just say these things and, and go on. But I just, so I'll leave that with you. Um, one more thing before we, we have coffee. And that is to say this. This wasn't the only time that Jesus was thirsty. The first Jesus felt that day at the well was nothing to the thirst he felt at the end of his life. He was crucified on the cross for the sins of the world. And because of the shock and the loss of blood and the trauma to his body, he was dehydrating terribly. And, and John 19 says, knowing that everything had now been finished, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. 
Out of his dehydration, he made it possible to quench our thirst forever. In his lack of water, he made it possible for us to have living water forever. From his death, he made it possible for us to experience eternal life. If we know this Jesus, how can we not go back and tell everyone what he has done for us? Let's pray for a moment. Jesus, thank you that you're here. Thank you that because of your spirit we can sing those words. Oh Lord, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen. Thank you that you're present, you're real. You are the living word bringing this story, not just to our minds, but to our hearts and spirits. And you want this story to inform the way we think and the way we live. Come, Lord Jesus, have your way in us. We find you compelling. Everything about you in this story is extraordinary. We worship you. But, Lord Jesus, we understand that if we are to follow you, we need to go and tell people, come see a man who tells me everything I've ever done. Lord, would you help us to move beyond our turf and our terms, to confront our fears, and to really go a whole new level of partnership with you in this amazing gospel. Jesus, you are worthy, and we give you our lives. Amen. That was today's episode of Holy Baptist Church Podcast. We hope it's prompted you to want to follow Jesus, hopefully a lot, but even just a little bit more closely. If you have any questions about what you've heard in today's episode or you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, you can email us, gotquestions at holybaptist.org.uk. We'd love to hear from you. It would really make our day. If you want to hear more from us, just a reminder, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you can download the Holy Baptist Church app from the Apple App Store or Google Play to hear it as well. Simply search Holy Baptist Church. Thank you again for listening to Holy Baptist Church podcast. We pray God will bless you and we'll see you next time. Thank you.